Howdy folks, just to give you another heads up, this episode may contain some discussion not suitable for little ears. I don't think it gets as crass in parts as uh, part one did, however, we are on the same topic still, so just a heads up and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks, welcome back to part two of the Madam Laura Evans. We left Laura's story in 1901. She had taken over a brothel in Central City for Madame Lou Bunch, and business there was declining. Yeah, so check out Mile Marker 30 for our visit to Central City for Madame Lou Bunch days. Yeah. Uh, she found her way back to Salida, a town that in passing captured her heart. She found a crib still available to let and spent a decade working away. Now we join Laura back in the year 1912. In January 1912, Jessie got word that her mother had passed away. She needed to go back home and help her father, but she was not going to come back. Laura was devastated to lose her dear friend Jessie that had been by her side from the start. In December of the same year, Laura got a knock on her door. She opened it to see a young couple standing on the porch, and it was her daughter and her new husband, She had a surprise for Laura. She was now a grandma. Surprise. (laughs) Laura got to meet her new grandson for the very first time. Yeah, she could have listened to our first episode where we discussed birth control. Yeah, well, she was married, so. (laughs) Oh, so you think that was intended? Yeah. All right. Well, talk around town at this time was they were going to shut down the red light district. This is a common discussion they had back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, John Phelan, who owned the cribs Laura worked in, as well as the one-story building next to it, wanted to sell them to Laura for 5000 bucks, Which is just over 140000 today. It's a good deal. Mm -hmm. He was worried that the new law would be passed and he didn't want to be stuck with the property. On January 13th, 1913, Laura withdrew the cash and gave him the money he wanted. She was now the new owner of three buildings as well as a large lot with room to expand. Laura had finally achieved her dream. After nearly 18 years of working in the industry, she finally became a madam. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Laura didn't stop there, though. Everyone in the red light district was worried about what might happen with the new law and wanted out. She paid Alma Osborne 9000 bucks cash for the Liberty Hotel and Parlor House. Which is just over 250000 today. As well as another six grand to John Phelan for the one-story cribs across the street from him. Just shy of 170000 So the cribs were located on the river, and Laura loved the idea of having a girl in the front and a view out the back. Mm-hmm. That sounds a little provocative. <laughs> so yeah, she'd come up with... Uh, What did we figure? Nearly right around half a million bucks worth in today's money instantly. So she was ready, waiting. Yeah, kind of uh, amazing for her to have that much cash set aside to just make that kind of a purchase. Yep, let's go. She Mm -hmm. was ready. Yep. At the age of 42, Laura owned most of the city block at this point. She no longer had to work for her money. She could hire girls to do the work for her. Her time as a madam was short-lived, though. 
In May 1913, the city announced they were closing the red light district down. The closure only lasted a month before the city realized the money coming from the red light district's fines and fees were what funded the entire city government's budget. Oops. Yeah, it's a little bit of an oversight. (laughs) Yeah, poor planning on their part. (laughs) Well, it was common practice throughout every town to enforce fines on the parlor houses, cribs, as well as the gals working in the area. So in Salida, the fines collected from the gals were about 100 bucks a month. Which is around $2,800. Whereas fines collected from petty crimes only brought in about 15 bucks. So that's only $400 Big today. difference, yeah. yeah. And they're looking, is that per gal? 100 bucks per gal? Probably not. Yeah, I think it was like saying collectively. Collectively, yeah. They were getting $100 from the red light district, basically. Yeah. Pretty insane. Which seems kind of low because I felt like some places were charging like parlor houses like even upwards to like $50 and then they were collecting like $10 per girl as well. Right, yeah. And if we had 200 gals working in the district altogether, like when we discussed them going to Honolulu in China, there was 200 gals that joined to see who could go. Yeah, that was in so, Denver. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, obviously a bigger one, but even if there's 20 gals down here, whatever it is, that's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Well, the city realized that it was a lot of money for them to lose, and they didn't really have a plan in place to make up the difference. So the only choice they really had was to kind of open things back up and collect the fines again. Yep. And they had to have something to tax. So to make things communicable between the city folk and the girls, the city designated one area of the town to be the red light district. Pretty common again. Mm-hmm. Uh, no woman from the red light district was to cross over into the segregated area. This allowed uh, the common folk protection against these ruffian gals. Yeah, because, you know, these girls were dangerous and you really want really wouldn't want to be caught alone in a dark alley with them. No, huh? no not these gals. No. <laughs> dangerous. Keep them away from us. Yeah. Who knows what they're going to do? Yep. You might get a disease if you pass by them over here. <laughs> well, once Lara felt confident that her parlor house was safe from closure, she set to work to making her newly acquired Liberty Hotel her own house of mirrors. Laura loved the House of Mirrors in Denver, and she was enamored at all the details inside the building. The door posts were elaborately carved penises. Would that be penis eye for multiple? <laughs> like cacti? Is multiple cactus? Peni? Penis eye? Penis eye. Anyway. <laughs> there was oriental carpeting throughout the building. The walls were covered in floral wallpaper. And every inch of the walls were covered in mirrors of all shapes and sizes. Probably where they got the name House of Mirrors, right? That's a good indicator, yeah. (laughs) There was a large crystal chandelier hanging from the ceiling in the center of an 8-foot by 8-foot mirror with more mirrors around it. (laughs) Laura knew her place would not be the same level the House of Mirrors was, yet she used this as an inspiration for her house, Probably because um, the House of Mirrors had all of the mirrors available in the area. Yeah, unless they were getting rid of one, there was nothing to buy. (laughs) Yeah. I did find that the building the House of Mirrors was located in is still standing, but after Jenny passed away, the parlor house changed hands a few times before everything was auctioned off. And I actually really wish I could have seen this building for myself. The way that it's described just sounds so beautiful. Yeah, and that's the one in Denver? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, kind of a shame, but that's what happens. 
yeah, I know. It makes you wonder, like, where all that stuff went, you know? Yeah, where's the uh, doorposts? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Someone has them. Well, Laura's house is described as having a staircase located at the entrance of the building that led to the gal's rooms. There were three rooms on each side of the hall with a shared bathroom at the end. Each of the gal's rooms had a large walk-in closet, a sink, and a wood stove. On the main floor was a large ballroom that Laura later converted to three more rooms. She built a large bar against the back wall with a gambling table to the side. The room was full of large velvet ottomans and velvet couches. In an attempt to recreate the house of mirrors, she placed large mirrors on the walls and hung a crystal chandelier. She placed Tiffany-style lamps with a hanging crystal fringe around the room as well. Yeah, those are the style lamps that I want for the front room of our house. Yeah, that'd go great with the curtains that we just put up there. Mm -hmm. Make our own little parlor room. (laughs) I want like an actual vintage one, though, but I don't think you could find one without paying like $10,000 for it. Yeah, you'll pay for it if you find it, that's for sure. (laughs) So to try and ease the discomfort that some of the men might feel when they came into the house for the first time, Laura bought a collection of parrots and canaries. She also placed bowls of treats throughout the parlor so the men could feed the birds, and she felt the birds would be a way for the men to connect without having to talk to the girls, you know, because the parrots would talk back to them. What do you think they were trained to say out of a brothel? (laughs) Polly want a cracker? Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine the stuff that those birds would hear inside of that house? Yeah, it might not be too much different than this house, but... And then they Marley doesn't repeat everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, we're never getting a parrot. No. Well, Lara's new house attracted men from all over, as well as the girls, because they all wanted to see the new house in Salida. The house was packed, and Laura was so thankful to see this. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, living the life of a gal in the red light district was difficult. Rarely would they have a connection with a man that would last, or at least not be an abusive fellow. Uh, The gals were shuffled around from parlor house to parlor house to keep the selection of gals new, and some of the gals' families would disown them. So if the girls did not get out of the lifestyle before they were old, they faced a life of being alone, and this is very difficult for them to face. Mm -hmm. Uh, Laura was lucky. She saved her money and made a life for her that she could enjoy and not have to rely on a man to take care of her. Yeah. I can't say she was lucky. She prepared for it, you know? She yeah. really sacrificed a lot and, and worked hard to get it. So, Yeah, I guess lucky is actually the wrong word to put there, huh? Yeah, yeah she nailed it, though. She did. She, she was dedicated. You mm-hmm. know, she made a goal when she was probably in her mid-20s and, yeah. and finally succeeded. I mean, it took a long time to get to that point, but she did it. Yeah. So, well, a woman by the name of Diamond Dick Valentine was working for Laura. I love that name, Diamond Dick Valentine, which Valentine is like right around the corner for us. No response. (laughs) Yeah, that's an interesting name for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, she was 42 years old and had been working in the red light district for most of her life. When she first started working, it was in Salida. She fell in love with a young man who convinced her that he loved her. I think that happens quite a bit with these ladies. Mm Mm-hmm. He talked her into buying a house for the two of them, only to find out that he was already married and the house was not for them, but for him and his wife. Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. What a piece of shit, honestly. (laughs) Um, She decided to move away and start over in Denver, where she fell in love again with another man. 
she started to feel like she could not trust him and began to sneak around and check up on him. One night while following him, she fell and broke her back, causing her to stay in the hospital for two years to recover. That's tough. Yeah. When she finally left the hospital, she found out everything she owned was gone. It was either sold. And I think she had one of the girls take like uh, holding her dresses for her. Mm. And the building caught on fire that the dresses were in. So, oh, shit. yeah, like essentially everything was gone. And she had no idea while she was in the hospital, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, not knowing what else to do, she returned to Salida and started working for Laura. Well, Laura offered her a job as a housekeeper, but she didn't want to take it. She wanted to rent her own crib and work for herself again. So on October 24th, 1913, Laura received a letter from a young man. It read, Laura, by the time you receive this, I will be beyond medical aid. Don't try to send for a doctor because I won't allow him to attend to me. With no regrets, au revoir. See how good I am with my French? Nailed it. (laughs) Au revoir. Diamond Dick had taken 20 tablets of dichloride of mercury in an attempt to kill herself. Laura quickly called for the doctor, and Diamond Dick was rushed to the hospital. She lived for six more days before passing away. She would never reveal her real name or anything about her family. This was the first, but not the last suicide Laura would have to deal with at her house. Yeah, I didn't really want to get into it. The book talked about it a lot more that she had dealt with. I think there was like five or six more in the book. Oh, wow. Yeah, so if that's something that interests you, read the book. <laughs> yeah, we encourage it. It's a good yeah. book. Mid-November, Laura got a call from Lillian Powers. She was working in Cripple Creek for a madam named Leo the Lion. If you remember, we told you about Leo when Laura went to visit Cripple Creek before she began working in Leadville. Mm-hmm. She was the naked lady in February walking down the street. With a bottle being drunk. Mm-hmm. I also think you were going to sing a song, too. Are you ready to do that? <laughs> not, not yet. It needs the actions with it. Oh, yeah. You need your outfit and a camera. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, I could do it now, but it just won't. It's not going to translate as well. Yeah. Okay. We'll record it. It'll be a Patreon thing. I made a note already that uh, I'm not going to let you forget that. Okay. Okay. So I was actually also shocked to find out that Leo the Lion was still alive at this time. (laughs) Right. Um, Because these girls, some of them didn't live very old. So Lillian told Laura that Leo had seen her favorite customer walking out of her crib. Well, Leo was so upset by this that she pulled her shotgun out and aimed it at Lillian, yelling at her. You double-crossing bitch. Get out of that crib. Get out of Cripple Creek, or you're dead. It was probably more dramatic, though, huh? Well, she had a shotgun. Okay. (laughs) Well, Laura couldn't tell her no and told her to come and work for her instead. Lillian worked for Laura for some time and even helped manage the cribs for Laura in return for a percentage of the profits. Eventually, Lillian moved to Florence, Colorado and opened her own house and ran it until she was shut down by the city in the 1940s. Yeah, and that's actually on our list of research to see if there's anything we can find in the area and uh, make a trip. Yeah, yeah, she, Lillian came back to visit Laura. I didn't put this in here, but she came back to visit Laura when Laura was getting older. Uh-huh. And found out how much money she owned on her properties and paid off the loan for her. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yep. Very cool. Yeah, they became really, really good friends. That's awesome. 
Well, on December 31st, 1915, Prohibition went into effect in Colorado. Laura needed liquor for her businesses this is part of the uh, the whole picture. Yeah, yeah, so, they kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, well, men had come to her place for a smoke and a drink or two to relax after work or whatever. Uh, without it, some of the men wouldn't have the courage to spend time with the gals, and therefore no money would be exchanging hands to uh, mm -hmm. support everything. So in order to get what she needed, Laura would meet with the bootleggers in the early morning, bringing her own bottles just so that she could get her little supply for the day. Uh, the cost of bootleg liquor was very high, and it made a very significant impact on her profits there. Yeah. I wonder if men went there just knowing that they could still get booze. Oh, quite likely. Yeah. I don't know. That's interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. In 1918, Laura met Dudley Gardner O'Daniels. He was 16 years younger than her, and she was madly in love with him. Though he was an alcoholic, she did not care. He made her feel young again. He also played on the Salida baseball team, and she would go to every game to support him. As the two started spending more time, Laura started to notice he was drinking a lot of her booze. Probably a limited supply of her booze, and he's pounding through it. Yeah, it's all bootleg stuff right now. so expensive, too. Yeah. Well, she confronted him and told him that he needed to pay for what he drank. I'm sure he didn't like that idea. No. <laughs> One night while Laura was in bed, she heard someone getting into her secret hiding space. She used to hide her cash in the back of the piano. She walked out into the front room to confront the robber holding a baseball bat that Dudley had given her. As she approached the robber, she took a good hard swing, knocking him to the ground. When she was able to finally get a good look at the person, she found out it was her man, Dudley. <laughs> Oops. I think that's funny. She hits him with the bat that he gave her. <laughs> yeah, well, he was stealing her money, so serves him right. He rightly deserved it, yeah. On March 5th, 1921, Laura got a surprise visit from her daughter, sharing with her that she had just had another baby. Do you think she only visits when she has babies? <laughs> it seems like it. <laughs> At one point in the book, Laura was like, I didn't know if she was on husband number four or husband number five. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so it sounds like in all, she had three kids, and it sounds like all three kids came from a different dad. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, this was her granddaughter, Audrey Lucille Leopard, who was born on February 19th, 1921. Just after Valentine's. Yeah. Well, though Dudley tried to steal from Laura and would drink all her booze without paying for it, she still let him stay in her life. She liked the way he made her feel and figured his drinking was just a small price to pay. On August 1st, he was invited to meet up with his old baseball pals in Glenwood Springs. The next morning, Laura got a phone call saying that Dudley was dead. She was told that he was playing around in the water, going up and down, and eventually he didn't come back up. There was a lifeguard on duty, but they just weren't able to save him. Yeah, I'm sure he was drunk and yeah. messing around. And there are all hot springs up there in Glenwood yeah. Springs, so not good when you're drunk. Yeah, I didn't think of that. They probably were in the hot springs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, in the 1930s, Laura met another man, Charles O'Leary, and he was a dirtbag. He was married and living in Denver, but Laura didn't care. She loved that another man was enamored with her. The two of them spent almost a year together before he convinced her to come to California with him to play in a poker game. Laura lost thousands of dollars in the game because it was fixed, and I couldn't find out if he was the one that fixed the game 
or but if it was just a fake scheme in general. He still likely knew and was part of it. That's yeah. That's why he got her to go out there, huh? Yeah, that's almost kind of the feeling I got. Yeah. So uh, she was just devastated. And as they went back to their campground, he tried to convince her to invest her money with him in a joint business venture. Obviously, she's at this point thinking, I don't really think that's a great idea. Right. <laughs> well, Lara went to bed and awoke the next day to find him and her fox fur gone. What an ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when she arrived back home, she was extremely sick. Several doctors came to visit her and couldn't find out what was wrong with her. They'd put her on a special diet thinking that maybe that would help. One night, some clients came to her house with some whole chickens. I was trying to figure out if they were like the Costco rotisserie chickens, but <laughs> Gypsy thinks that they were raw chickens with the head still on them. That's what I pictured. It's like <laughs> the whole entire chicken with the head, the little feet, and Just the no arms. Fur. Yeah. No <laughs> fur or feathers, I yeah. guess. <laughs> they, uh, they brought the chickens over because they wanted to have dinner with the gals there. Laura saw the chickens and couldn't stop herself. She grabbed the bird and, like a little kid, ran into the other room to eat it in secret. Well, this made her very sick, but it turned out to be a good thing because the doctors were able to then figure out that she was suffering from an intestinal stricture. She had surgery to remove the restricted part of her bowels, which only cost her $40.12. And that's just over $800 today. You can't have a wisdom tooth surgery. No. <laughs> let alone getting into your intestines and removing a section. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy for 800 bucks. Well, and that's what, like in the book, it said she had spent thousands of dollars on medical bills. Huh? Only to need a $40 surgery. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yep. Well, during the Depression, Laura did what she could to help out the community. One man was injured while working in the railroad and could no longer get a job that would make enough money to support his family. He was offered a job to sell newspaper and was paid a pretty high salary for that position. Laura was actually giving the store owner the difference in pay and did not tell him that she was even doing this. Nice. Mm -hmm. She would often let women who were in an abusive relationship come and stay with her until they work things out. And all of this was for free. Mm -hmm. She would pay the kids 25 cents to wash her car. And she had the cleanest car in town, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it's washed every day. Yeah. She also paid to put a new roof on the Methodist church. You know, it's common that we find with the madams in the areas that they love supporting their community. Yeah, but their community never supported them, you know. Right. It's super sad. I, I didn't put it in here now that you said that it reminded me. But when she passed away, um, there was three churches in town and not a one of them would let her services be held at their church, including the Methodist church that she paid to put the roof on. They said, no, she can't have her services here at our church. Yeah, insane. They're happy to take your money, though. Yeah. Yep. So it's just really sad. You know, they, they took all they could from her, but then when they needed, when she needed them, they weren't there. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, my favorite thing that she did was actually purchase new uniforms for the high school football team. <laughs> yeah. So in uh, 1935, the coach of the team was out knocking on doors, asking for donations. Knocking on her door, Laura invited him in and started looking through the catalog. She told him that she liked the purple and white satin ones. The coach told her they were more money than any of the other uniforms. Laura responded, If you let the boys wear satin, I'll pay for the whole bunch. 
Well, she had kind of a special place in her heart for the boys. They grew up around her, and some of them even delivered her groceries and clearly washing her cars. Yeah. They were the best-dressed team that year and went on to be undefeated. Wouldn't it be fun to, like, see if there's one of those uniforms still floating around somewhere? Yeah, it could be an antique store out there that has one. Yeah, somebody's got to have one in, like, their grandpa's little box in the back of the garage or something, you know? Yeah, this is just from the 30s, so there's definitely that kind of stuff floating around in attics still. Mm-hmm. On April 30th, 1941, Lara got a phone call from her daughter. Her granddaughter, Audrey, had passed away. She was 22 years old, and though she was telling her mother she was in pain, Lucille did not take her to the hospital. Her appendix had ruptured, and by the time they figured it out, it was too late. Yeah, you don't have too much time with that sort of thing, mm-hmm. especially at that point in time. Yeah. On December 4th, 1949, after working in Salida for almost 50 years, Laura was told the city was closing the red light district. She was almost 79 years old by now and didn't know what she was going to do to make money. Laura owed 2400 bucks on her parlor house from an old loan she had taken out and new ones she had taken out to help folks during the Depression. With her house empty, she made the decision to rent the rooms out to the men working on the railroad. So the men worked all hours, so Laura always had someone to hang out and play cards with. Yeah, she actually really liked that because she was a night owl. Right. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yep. So I thought it was uh, quite the change from, you know, housing girls to pleasing men to housing men to keeping her company. Yep. <laughs> I guess either way, the men were still paying her bills, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a true story, huh? <laughs> well, in July 1950, she got another knock on her door. It was the police chief. Laura invited him inside so the two of them could talk. He told her that since she had closed, the town was dealing with a lot more rape charges, and he wanted to know if she would be willing to open her parlor house back up. Huh. What's, <laughs> what are the chances of that, huh? Yeah. Well, she told him that she was happy with the renters that she had and that she wouldn't even know how to find most of the gals anymore. She ended the conversation by saying, Everyone has to live by the decisions they make, and you made a bad decision. Just keep this in mind. You all wanted this. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, in April of 1952, Laura, nearly 81 at this point, was walking across the street to check on one of her cribs because she was still renting those out. Everything was now a house or uh, like hotel rooms now. Yeah, they were kind of set up like apartments, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she somehow fell and broke her right arm. She spent some time in the hospital before she was allowed to go home, which was on the condition that her daughter, Lucille, was there to help her. Two days after being home, she woke up with a terrible headache. As she sat up in bed, blood started pouring out of her nose. One of her renters ran to get the doctor for help. Laura knew her time was coming to an end. The doctor told her she had a blood clot in her head that burst during the night and told her she needed to get some rest. It's kind of one of those things you probably need some rest after, yeah? Yeah, and how scary. I can't imagine how much, like, blood would just be coming out of your nose. Oh, Lord, I know. Yeah. The following year, Laura wasn't doing well again. The doctor came to visit her and told her that she was suffering from pneumonia. Months went by, and though her cough and fever had ended, she was still weak and tired. On April 3rd, 1953, she woke with a sharp pain in her chest. She was able to call the operator and whisper the doctor's name. An ambulance arrived, and they quickly took her to the hospital. The pneumonia had made her heart wink, and Laura passed away two months shy of her 82nd birthday on April 4th at 8.30 a.m. 
Laura was laid to rest at the Fairview Cemetery in Salida. She was surrounded by the folks who loved her the most. Her tombstone lists an incorrect birth date, but it does show the correct spelling of her last name. Yeah, so she did sign her name as E-V-A-N-S, but her husband John Cooper spelled his last name E-V-E-N-S. And it's the E-N-S that's on her tombstone, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Which kind of makes sense. She would be signing it differently to kind of hide her name even that much more. Sure. But really, that's how she was married and never remarried, so it would have been spelled with the E-N-S, not Mm A-N-S. To pay tribute to Laura, the mortician described her occupation on her death certificate as a resident of Salida for many years, operator of the Laura Evans Institution of Free Will and Unrestricted Morals Club for many years. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, we're actually looking to get a copy of this and we'll put that on the studio entrance door. Her death certificate? Uh huh. Yep. Yep, Institution of Free Will and Unrestricted Morals Club. Love it. <laughs> this may be a t-shirt. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I think it's a very creative way of putting what she was. Absolutely. Yeah, and good for him. Somebody that actually gave a shit. Well, he really liked her because, unfortunately, like I said, she had dealt with a lot of suicides and murders. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that she was always the one that either found the girls <laughs> or helped bury the girls or was somehow connected to them in some fashion. Mm-hmm. So her and the mortician actually really got along pretty well. Yeah, her being somebody that gave a shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his building is still standing. I looked it up just out of curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. The mortuary itself? Or? Yeah, the okay. mortuary building is still standing. Cool. I don't remember where it was at, but it's just kind of fun, you know, that mm-hmm. that they cared. Yeah. So, Laura's building was sold to the local Shriners, who used it for some years. They boarded off the upstairs and only used the main floor, but you used to be able to go upstairs through a trap door. And the author of the book, My Life as a Horror, got a tour of the building and she actually drew up a map of the layout in her book. So mm. it's kind of fun to see where the girls' rooms were at and stuff like that. Very cool. Mm-hmm. In 2015, the building was put up for sale. And today, according to Google Maps, Sweetie's Sound Shop is located inside the building. I wonder if they knew what this building was. <laughs> I don't know. Sweetie's is a good name for it, though, if they did. Yeah. So if you're ever in the area and you want to stop by, the address is 129 West Sackett Avenue. And the cribs across the street that Laura once owned are gone and have now since been replaced with some upscale apartments. Probably those buildings weren't really safe for them to continue to rent them out. Yeah, I'm sure they were built not to high standards. Yeah, so it's probably cheaper just to tear it down and start over. Mm -hmm. Laura was a headstrong woman who was not afraid to take risks and loved life to the fullest. She gave back to the community when she could and loved the people in her life. We just touched on the bigger events in Laura's life, but if you ever do get the chance to read the book, My Life as a Horror, the biography of Madam Laura Evans, it is definitely worth the read. Yeah, definitely. All righty, folks. Well, uh, that concludes our visit to Madame Laura Evans in the second half of a two-part episode. This yeah. isn't as long as maybe I thought it was going to be, but still pretty good, though. Yeah. Well, it would have been a really long first episode, so. 
Yeah, makes it easier to listen to. Yeah, so yeah, that concludes our visit to see Madam Laura Evans buried in the Fairview Cemetery in Salida, Colorado. Uh, thank you all for hanging in here for this two-part episode, the first that we've done. So, um, Eva. Eva. <laughs> so you've made everybody wait through a two-part episode to get your dad joke. Do you have a good one for us? Or I do. Are you ready for it? I've been waiting for a whole episode prior to hear this. Oh, okay. Like two good. episodes I've been waiting. <laughs> okay, so what do you call a constipated detective? I, I don't know. No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes? Like the detective? No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Isn't that what people say when they're like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock? (laughs) Yo. (laughs) All right. That was was the one, huh? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, I found some other ones, but I was like, I know that this is like a dirty episode. You know, it's a madam, but I don't want to like go too bad with the jokes. (laughs) There was some pretty funny ones. (laughs) All right. You want me to do it? It's your, this is your uh, spotlight. Okay, you can cut it out. Okay. Okay, what do you call a lesbian cock block? <laughs> I have no idea. A beaver dam? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, go on. All righty then. <laughs> Thank you all so very much for joining us on our adventures out here. Uh, We've talked about the YouTube stuff, and we're getting closer to the YouTube companion channel. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've done a couple things on recording, just learning a little bit, and we've put them up on the Patreon thing. But uh, you can find our uh, YouTube channel by searching just Rebel at Large. I'll put a link to it on the show notes. Uh, There's a couple things up there that I've put together over the past few years from back when I started the Rebel at Large is just a blog. So Mm -hmm. there's a couple things out there. However, we plan on doing a much better job than what's up there now, a little bit more focused and whatnot. But anyhow, if you head over and subscribe to the channel and do whatever you're supposed to do, click bells and buttons and things like that, you'll get notifications and all that when we start loading some film up there. Yeah, I always see people in the videos like pointing, click here to subscribe. So that sounds like that's the thing you're supposed to do is to subscribe to people's channels. If you guys could have seen Gypsy, she was actually just pointing all over the room while she was describing that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, maybe we can um, put the Leo the Lion video on YouTube. Yeah, we'll... uh... We'll talk about that. We'll later. talk about that and see. We'll talk about that off air. <laughs> All right. Well, as always, we're uh, most active on the Instagram at Rebel at Large. If you want to see what we're up to, you can find links in our email, Patreon, and other social deals, as well as photos relating to each episode on our website, rebelatlarge.com. Yeah, uh, I don't know what we're going to put up for this combo thing. I haven't got that far in the editing yet, but we'll see. Yep. All right, well, we'll talk to you right here in a couple of weeks. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road.
<clears throat> Christ, I can't do this today. Each of the gals' rooms had a large walk-in closet, a stink. <laughs> a stink? Well, in 1819, Laura met Dudley Gardner O'Daniels. That's way back in time from when this actually happened. What did I say, 1819? You did. Oh. Beep. Easy. Hey. (laughs) You can take that out. (laughs) On October 4th at 8.30 a.m. What's funny is you said October 4th last time, too, when we were doing a pre-read, but it's... Clearly says April. Yeah, I'll read that again. Okay. So let me start over that right there. Okay. I don't know exactly what you're talking about. Shriners? So. Oh, okay. I okay. don't know how it was different. Oh, okay. We'll cut that part out then because it is spelled a little bit weird. Okay. And I didn't know if that was just the Shriners being funny. So. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 